Hello, I'm Selena Vidya, and welcome to the Permissionless Podcast, where we explore journeys into the unknown with creatives and entrepreneurs. If you missed our last episode with David Bianchi, actor, producer, motivational speaker, and founder of Exertion Films, head on back and give that episode a listen after this. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Wes Kao. Wes is a marketing expert who has led over 150 launches for Fortune 500 brands and startups, including L'Oreal, Gap, Bear Essentials, and Flight, an ad tech startup acquired by Snapchat. She was also the founding executive director of Seth Godin's Alt MBA as Employee Zero, and grew that team to over 40 people and 2,000 alumni around the world. Now Wes runs her own marketing consulting practice, and she works directly with clients in healthcare, consumer goods, and tech to create marketing engines for their upcoming product launches. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. There are a ton of insights related to life and career and balance. Let's go. Hi, Wes. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. And uh, so we're just going to start pretty generally. I do want to take it back to the beginning. We won't go back too far, but where did you grow up? I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. And did you live there primarily your whole life or did you end up traveling around before where you are now? I was pretty much there for my whole life. It was a Mm -hmm. town called Fremont that is about 40 minutes outside of San Francisco. And our claim to fame is that that's where the Tesla factory is now, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that is very cool. So did you end up staying there for school or did you travel for school at all? I went to UC Berkeley for college, so it was um, pretty close. Um, I was the only one of my siblings that stayed um, close to home for college. Um, But yes, I I went to Berkeley, um, and then during college, I studied abroad twice. Um, I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and then Shanghai as well. So I I got a little bit of travel in um, during, during college. Okay. And how did you adapt when you went overseas? Was there anything that you did in preparation? Were you doing anything to kind of help with the the language barrier or what was that like? Well, with going to Argentina, I didn't know any Spanish before I went. Um, And so, you know, I think I was one of the only people in the program who um, hadn't taken at least one Spanish course before um, landing uh, in South America. Um, so it was it was definitely a steep learning curve. Um, I I brought a lot of um, supplemental materials to study on my own, just to get conversational. Um, I think there's a there's a certain point when you realize that not being able to communicate with people around you is really really painful. And I remember taking the cab um, from the airport to um, my host mom's house, um, and just not even being able to describe where I was trying to go and, you know, what I was doing and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, so I had, I think there was, um, I had a lot of incentives to get to a working um, vocabulary. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting because now we have technology where if you, if you did have a barrier and you needed to say something or understand something, you can just whip out your phone. But you know, it's much like um, traveling in the past too. Everything was so much more difficult because you didn't have that option. You just had to feel it out and actually communicate with people to try to pick up the language. Yes, definitely. Huge fan of technology for this reason and many other reasons. Um, I think one thing that's been interesting in in traveling um, is 
I always heard from people that, you know, oh, everyone speaks English in different countries, especially big cities. You're going to be fine. And in many places that I visited um, throughout the years, I've actually found that not to be true necessarily. Um, or, or it might also just be that that people don't want to um, don't want to just switch the English. Maybe they they want you to try speaking their language. But um, yeah, I try to at least have a few phrases now if I'm going to be going somewhere because I find that it just makes the trip that much more enjoyable. Yeah, and I I think you're right about. Um you know, how people say that English is typically spoken in a lot of the big cities. So I lived overseas when I was, I believe, 11 or 12. I went to an international school over there. And when I was in, you know, Belgium or any of the, the bigger areas, it was very hard to find people who would speak English. And I don't know if it's because they um, just wanted to kind of make it a little easier for themselves or because there was the influx of people from, you know, America where they're just so used to hearing English that they want to they want to help people adapt who are traveling overseas to their language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I tend to be very um, America centric. Um, just, you know, most of my clients and my jobs and, you know, education has been in the U.S., um, you know, with short stints abroad. But I'm always so surprised and, and amazed when um, I see statistics about how fast um, the global market is is growing for a lot of apps that are common and popular for um, North America. So Instagram, for example, um, I just read a stat yesterday that 70% um, of Instagram users are outside of the U.S., um, which was shocking to me. I mean, it just, it feels very high. But then if you think about, okay, what percentage of people are outside of the US, it's the majority. Um, so it really makes sense. But I think traveling really helps give you that um, that perspective that um, things are not necessarily the way that they were, um, you know, they are in your home country. And um, and it's it's really great just to be exposed to different cultures and, and what's considered normal in different places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then coming back to America, especially when you're going into kind of a professional career, there's a lot that you can take from other cultures and just having that communication with different ways of life, different cultures, um, getting around. I feel that that's a, a great skill to bring into the professional world, too. Mm -hmm. So you went to school overseas. Uh, what did you end up studying? Um, I studied business administration. I had a focus on marketing and um uh, it was it was great. I pretty much knew that I wanted to do marketing since I was in high school. Um, I was kind of a, a nerd, um, surprise, surprise, in that I was really, really career driven. And um, actually, I was cleaning out my my old room because my parents are moving and they're empty, empty nesters now. Um, and they wanted me to clean up all these boxes of stuff that I'd saved up over the years. And I was looking through all these folders um, of, of, you know, papers from internship prep and, you know, scholarship applications and career center worksheets that I'd stapled and printed, um, you know, on professional etiquette and networking and, and, you know, job hunting and stuff. Um, so I was always really keen on starting my career and, um, especially with marketing, it just felt like such a natural fit because there's um, the data-driven component, um, but also very um, personal human um, element about understanding why people buy the things that we buy, 
um, you know, how do how do we interact with the products in our lives? So that kind of numbers plus human element was always really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, because a lot of people think about marketing and they think about more of the creative aspect side of things. And then they think about advertising as something that's very data and number driven. But marketing now is so much of everything, right? You can have the best campaigns and launches and marketing creative, but it's all based off of what you're seeing and the data that you're collecting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think thinking about about data, not just in terms of, um, not just in a purely quantitative sense can be really useful because there's so much qualitative data that marketers are constantly working with. And a lot of what, what you might consider intuition is are really data points that you've gathered over time and um, you know based on what you've what you've seen in different campaigns, how you've seen different things work out when you try different experiments. So I like breaking down intuition and that creative piece into um, a more systematic process too so that um, there's it's less of a black box and and more um, more something you can point to and talk about as a group and as a team um, in the same way that you can talk about data and point to it and see it. And it makes it really tangible. So I love that you mentioned the intuition part because that's something, you know, even myself as a marketer, I, I haven't heard it described or thought about that way. So it's it's very compelling. And I wonder, so you, you're a marketer now and when you went through school and you were going through a lot of the, the business and marketing classes, did you find that what you learned in school was something that was tangible that you could take into the professional world? Or did you feel like things were moving so fast that you basically adapted on the fly once you started working and kind of, you know, glazed over um, a lot of what was in school because it was a little ancient at that point in time? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I think about the purpose of school, the what is it for, I don't really think of it in terms of learning the most up-to-date, tactical, material that you can apply straight on the job. I think the benefit of going through um, higher education is learning how to think, how to structure your arguments, how to work with people, how to know um, when to take shortcuts versus when not to, how to manage your own time. So all of those things were were incredibly um, useful and important that, that you know you start practicing in college. Um, but in terms of the actual material, it was a long time ago, so I can't really remember, you know, what exactly um, the curriculum was about. But I do, um, you know, in terms of takeaways, um, getting a really high level idea of um, what does it take to run a business in terms of, you know, understanding finance, economics, accounting, marketing, organizational behavior, having that well-rounded um, that well-rounded view was was definitely incredibly helpful. So after you had graduated, what was next in your journey? My first job out of college was at the Gap headquarters in San Francisco. Um, and I was so excited for, for that role because it was a rotational program that um, had a couple months each in Old Navy, Banana Republic, um, the Gap brand, um, rotating through the core functions of retail. So I was super excited to do a rotational program because I knew that that was something that had a little bit of a time 
span, adult time limit to it, um, because most rotational programs are are for new grads. Um, so so that was uh, an eight or nine month program, and at the end of that, you got to pick which function you wanted to dive into, and um, there were three to choose from, um, and I picked the one that I felt the weakest in, which was the number-centric one. It was a quantitative uh, analyst role. Um, and I was I was stressed about that because I thought, okay, you know, going to merchandising, that seems like a natural fit, especially being interested in marketing and consumer behavior and whatnot. But I felt like there was really no better chance to become stronger in quant um, than to do it for a living. Um, and and to have the training with an amazing company that that um, you know cared a lot in, in investing in its employees, and so I chose the analyst role, um, and um, and even to this day, I'm I'm so glad that I did that because I learned to add analytical rigor and structure to the way that I think, and it's you know it was a lot of numbers and you know size, size uh, what is it size eight font, just spreadsheets and spreadsheets of numbers. Um, mm-hmm. But the takeaways that I that I learned in terms of being able to um, think in a more analytical way, I've been able to apply basically in everything that I've done since then. Um, and so that's, that's just been um, such a godsend. I think it is very fascinating that you went with your your weakest side and you actually went through and did that because a lot of people focus on where their strengths are not because it's necessarily easier, but because they feel more comfortable. So were you experiencing any kind of imposter syndrome or what was it like mentally where you knew that you were going into something where you wanted to strengthen yourself, um, but you were kind of moving fast at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think earlier on in your career is definitely the time to try things that you might not be as good at and round out some skill sets that come a little bit more difficult to you that you think you might have to use going forward. Um, for me, you know, anytime I tried avoiding something that I didn't really know how to do, it would always come around again and I would be reminded of how painful it was. And so for me, it just felt like, all right, this is my first job out of college. Um, this is really the time to learn and experiment and get stronger in this area so that it doesn't hold me back later on. Um, so absolutely, there were there were definitely times when I questioned whether this was a, a horrible idea, um, and and I definitely think that it it was harder um, because um, that that function just didn't come as naturally to me. Um, but I think knowing the bigger purpose of something, knowing that hey, I'm learning this because I know it's going to be good for me, um, that's a very um, good reminder to motivate yourself with. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. So after you were in that position, where did you end up going after that? I went to Bear Essentials after that, which is a beauty company that got acquired by Shiseido. Uh, they make mineral foundation. So I went to Bear Essentials um, and that was incredible. That was I was in brand management marketing there. So focusing on product launches, um, category management, growing both the bread and butter products, um, but also seasonal new launches. Um, and that's really where I learned to flex my marketing muscles. Um, I'd done an internship at L'Oreal uh, during college, 
um, a summer internship. And so I had some experience in beauty before, um, also in, in brand management. And brand management within consumer goods companies are very similar to product management at tech companies. So the brand manager is really the one who is owning um, the, the business as a mini CEO. So it was a wonderful um, experience because you really got to see um, the entire life cycle of product from you know, from the idea to bringing it to market to um, maintaining um, marketing campaigns and whatnot, um, but across dozens of different products at different stages of of um, their life cycle. So, um, so yeah, so that was that was really exciting for me. Um, and then my role after that was um, jumping into tech, and uh, and that was a that was a, a big jump because at the time I thought you know I only wanted to be in tangible goods type of categories. Um, you know, Gap was physical goods with, with you know, retail, apparel, clothing, and then, and then beauty products. Um, but I was excited about tech because I was um, seeing, seeing the boom and just the growth within the industry. Um, and I also felt like beauty wasn't necessarily the culture for me. That makes perfect sense. So when you were transitioning into the tech side of things, do you feel like you had any mentors along the way or people that you were able to lean on? Or did you kind of feel your way around when you moved into that sector? I'm big on peer mentors. So I don't necessarily um, I don't necessarily think of, of mentors as, um, you know, a, a Yoda-like figure. Um, in our lives, um, but I have a lot of peer mentors, and these are these are people who are um, in similar life stages as me, and um, or are a couple steps ahead, and so they've recently gone through some of the some of the challenges that I might be going through, um, and I love the idea of reaching out to peer mentors because there's a, there's a lot more dialogue, they're they're a lot more accessible than someone who is more of a Yoda like mentor. Um, and so much of learning and figuring things out is um, is being able to roll the punches and you know see what's coming, react to it, learn from it, you know have work in tight feedback loops. And I find that having peer mentors, um, you're both learning when you when you share the challenges that you're going through and what you're what you're seeing and how you dealt with it. Um, so during that time, I had a couple friends that were already in tech, and so reaching out to them and and getting a sense of okay, you know, how is the tech um, environment and ecosystem and culture different from um, retail and, and consumer goods, and just being able to talk to a bunch of different friends, reaching out to them, um, and getting a good sample size of of um, advice, I think is is very helpful because. Um, all advice is autobiographical, so you don't want to just ask one person or one mentor um, because we tend to give advice based on what worked well for us and what didn't, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if it didn't work for you that it's impossible to accomplish. So when you kind of survey a broader group of peer mentors, um, you get a, a better gauge of, okay, what are some common patterns that I'm seeing and how can I prepare for these patterns? 
I like that you brought up the point about the Yoda type mentor, because a lot of people, when they think about mentorship, they're thinking of kind of the pie in the sky. This person has done it all. They've been here um, and they can teach me the magical ways of whatever that I'm looking for. But there's something so special about peer groups because, number one, with the Internet, you can essentially connect and reach almost anybody that you want to, as long as they're receptive to it. And, you know, when you're looking for, if you start looking for that Yoda mentor, you're probably going to be frustrated because a lot of them aren't able to give the time in the way that you need. And they're not really involved in the nitty gritty in the way that you are at that point in time. Yes, absolutely. And so much of advice is dependent on knowing that nitty gritty um, because, you know, it's advice. um, It needs to address the actual situation, right? Because so many things are situational. So if someone doesn't know the nitty gritty, broad, high level advice isn't necessarily going to help you. Um, And I also think that sometimes we have too high expectations for the Yoda type mentor. So it's like, even if you did meet them, and even if they did have time to work with you, and, um, and even if they they were able to, um, you know, consistently know the details about you, we have such inflated expectations from putting them on a pedestal that um, whatever advice they tell us is probably not going to be as life-changing as we expect it to be. Um, and then that's just disappointing for everyone. So I think figuring out how you can learn from your heroes um, from a distance and channel them um, and imagine, hey, what would this person say to me right now if they were, if they were here? Um, or based on based on what this person preaches, what would they ask me right now? And then getting really good at mentoring yourself um, is a skill that can really carry with you throughout your career. Mm-hmm. I love that you were mentioning mentoring yourself because a lot of, especially if you're going the entrepreneurship route and you're working for yourself, there's a lot of personal development that has to go into it so that you can become mentally strong because a lot of what you're going to experience is self-doubt or learning new skills and you're not sure how to acclimate to that, navigating new waters, different industries. So the the self-mentoring part is so important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mentoring yourself is is really crucial. If you think about it, um, we're in our own heads all the time and we have these narratives running around in our heads, you know, about what's going on and just interpreting what people are saying. And if someone gives you a look, you're like, okay, what, were they giving me a dirty look? Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Do they not like me? So there's all kinds of narratives already going on in your head. So mentoring yourself is really um, taking charge of that internal narrative and channeling um channeling different voices that can help you make sense of all those narratives. Um, and you know, if we're, if we're going to be talking to ourselves anyway, we might as well get better at it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is a good point in time to kind of fast forward to the Alt-MBA because I feel like a lot of what we're talking about with the peer mentoring and workshopping and group structures ties right into that. So how did you, what, what was the journey to that point? Yeah, so after um, being at the ad tech startup for three years, it eventually got acquired by Snapchat. Um, so I was looking to move to New York, and um, you know I didn't really have a plan besides an itch to try something new. Um, and I saw a blog post that Seth had put up saying that he was looking for a special projects lead to um, help him figure out what his next big thing should be. 
So I tossed my name in the ring, um, not thinking very much about it. Um, and lo and behold, a couple days later, I get um, an email in my inbox from Seth saying that, hey, um, let's hop on a call for an interview. Um, and I was I was just completely ecstatic. And, uh, you know, the, the interview um, and the job application was um, was interesting because it required a video, a one minute video. And I filmed my video in one take because I, I just didn't think that anything was going to come out of it. And I didn't want to invest too much emotional energy into um, worrying about it and, and making it perfect and then not getting it. So, um, you know, so it was a one minute video um, and, and you were supposed to describe um, what you hope to learn, what you hope to build and what you hope to contribute. Um, and maybe it was, um, you know, just being more calm and relaxed in the video, um, you know, that, that allowed me to kind of focus without worrying too much about, hey, you know, do I look stupid? Um, but yeah, we hopped on a couple um, different interviews after that and, um, and I got the offer. And so, um, you know, the minute I got it, it was a, it was a yes for me. Um, and, uh, I started looking at apartments. Um, and then within a month I had packed my bags and moved cross country from San Francisco where I had lived for six years, um, to New York and, um, packed my life into six suitcases, um, and got an apartment sight unseen. So that was kind of scary. Um, I was really hoping I wasn't going to get scammed. Um, there's a broker fee in New York, um, which sucks. It's like one month's rent or, or you know, one fifteenth of your yearly rent. Um, but, you know, I, I remember texting a few friends and asking, hey, is this a thing? Um, and they said, unfortunately, yes. Um, uh, and, um, and then I moved and then I moved to New York. So before moving there, had you traveled or visited at all for anything, or is this completely 100% new? You just popped up and showed up there and was taking everything in. Um, I did a little bit of traveling around Asia, um, before officially starting my job. Um, but in terms of visiting New York, um, no, I, I hadn't been there, um, since, since 10 years ago at that time when I did the L'Oreal internship um, in college. And, um, and, and all of our interviews were um, via uh, Skype. Um, there was one in-person interview when Seth was in the Bay Area doing a speech in San Francisco. Um, so, so we met up in person. Um, but beyond that, you know, I had, I had no idea um, you know, where this little town was, the, the office for the Alt-MBA headquarters, um, is, uh, a little bit north of Manhattan, um, kind of near White Plains, Yonkers. Um, so it's this tiny little town. Um, and I looked it up on, on Google maps, um, and was like, okay, all right, Google earth. I was like, okay, that's cool. That's my door. Um, and, uh, and I just, it was really a leap of faith for me. So you were essentially one of the first people that was there building the Alt-MBA. Did it start off um, wanting to be a certain way and then it morphed into something bigger? Or what was the initial plan for Alt-MBA? That's a great question. So it started off um, really as a, a seedling of an idea that came up during that initial six months that I was working with Seth. 
So at that time, he had um, just sold his previous company, Squidoo. Um, and so he was kind of in between, you know, what should I really be doing? Um, so I was his only employee at that time. So it was the office, Seth and me. Um, and and I was tasked with figuring out what are all the different avenues that he could really double down on. So we looked at ideas ranging from a noodle shop to um, an ad agency that would promote um, positive good, things that were um, falling in the tragedy of commons, for example. So an ad agency agency focused entirely on that. Um, We looked at mobile games, um, an artisanal chocolate company, because Seth is really into chocolate. So we looked at a ton of different ideas. um, But at the end of the day, we realized that, that Seth is a teacher at heart. And his content inspires millions of people every day. Um, and the people who come hear him speak, who see him live, are transformed by the experience. So the question then became, okay, if we're narrowing down um, what the next big thing should be, let's focus in on ed tech, on education, on um, professional development. And from there, it was all about how can we flip the script on how other people are doing ed tech and what online learning looks like, because you know the completion rate for for finishing online courses with a traditional MOOC is seven percent, which is just so abysmal. Wow. You know, like if a hundred people start off taking a course, only seven people are are actually going to finish the whole thing. And so, you know, there was that that entire idea of of online education or education being democratized by the internet. Um, I think everyone had high hopes for it, but if you actually look at um, whether or not people are doing the material and sticking it through when it gets hard, um, when you're when you're learning at home at your own pace, you know, and you have 20 tabs open like I do on my browser and Instagram and Twitter and your email um, on your phone, it just gets really hard to um, to focus and continue learning when you don't have that physical environment around you like you do when you're in university, uh, when you're in college, um, and you have, you know, a mix of carrots and sticks with, you know, the stick being, hey, you know, you really need to graduate. So, you know, when with online learning, you don't have any of those those um, those sticks um, and, and not that many carrots either. Um, and so we really wanted to rethink what online education would look like. Um, and, you know, Seth has been creating... Um, for you know decades now um, and so it was such a privilege to be in on the ground floor there um, as a two-person team um, and then growing that team over the course of three years um, you know taking this from a whiteboard idea into you know v1 with launching our first cohort of 100 um, alt MBA students and then doing it again for um, session two three four, um, starting to do double sessions, so two cohorts running concurrently at the same time, um, and then hiring a lot of the Alt MBA alumni who um, showed so much generosity and promise during the course that we thought, you know, if we're going to build this team, let's tap into the talent that we have right here because these are people who are like minded, who are eager to learn, eager to do a great job, um, eager to contribute to the community. Um, and then growing that team from from just us us two into over forty people that are still um, at the Alt MBA now, all spread around the world. A ton of people are remote. Um, it was just one of the most incredible privileges I've had. 
And that's so powerful because I can't even tell you the number of times that I've started an online course and I get through it. I feel like I'm taking action in a vacuum and I don't feel like I have people to bounce things off. So it kind of trickles off. But that statistic is staggering about the amount of people that don't actually finish. I had no idea it was that small of a percentage that actually went all the way through. And what I love about the idea of the all MBA is it's essentially like education plus incubation together. So the fact that you were able to hire in people who went through, you know, who are part of the cohort is fantastic. Absolutely. And I love what you said about education plus incubation, because there's a, a hands-on component about learning that is is really crucial when um, when you're you're going through an experience. Um, and so much of online learning can really easily become passive, where you're passively watching videos, passively, you know, being lectured at. Um, and a lot of a lot of the ways that that traditional online education is is um, is done is really similar to you know being in a classroom, except you know instead of the teacher being in front of you, um, you know, you're watching video and that person's lecturing at you. And so, you know, the Alt MBA it was so special because it wasn't about someone lecturing at you, you know, going back to, you know, stepping away from the Yoda guru. Um, we didn't want to create a program that was, was going to have Seth be the guru that people were going to try to seek for a silver bullet because that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the entire program was designed to be about, encouraging people to do the work by rolling up their sleeves, actually working through the challenges that they were facing in, um, in their projects at work or in their side projects, whatever it may be, but really making it more real and tangible and, and concrete um, and bringing in some positive peer pressure. You know, I'm a huge fan of positive peer pressure. Usually we think of peer pressure as, as a bad thing, but um, there are so many times when um, if, if there are people around us who are aware of a goal that we're working on, um, and especially if they're working on similar goals, like they are in the Alt-MBA, um, bringing people together, breaking, the, breaking them up into groups, having people work in groups, then switch groups. Um, you just get exposed to um, such a broader group of people and diversity of perspectives than you than you other might, otherwise might have. And so being there on the ground floor, um, was was a huge experiment in and of itself because I remember you know when we were when we were starting to launch we thought okay you know if the Alt MBA doesn't work we'll do one session of it and then we can um, move on to a different project you know Seth d- does a ton of projects um, and so we thought all right you know we're not going to put too much pressure on ourselves here um, this is this is an interesting um, experiment in whether or not we can challenge some of the assumptions in in online learning. Um, and after the first session, we had such a positive response from the alumni um, that that we thought, you know, it would it it would be an absolute shame not to continue doing this because so many people are are impacted by it. And so, you know, my role was really about, you know, in the beginning being a a jack of all trades Swiss Swiss Army knife, um, doing whatever needed to be done, um, you know, building up um, the product and working with our our engineer um, and creative director that we brought on later, and then and then training coaches um, so that all of it could become a self-sustaining institution um, and really continue to serve all the amazing change agents and, and ruckus makers that 
wanted something different than a traditional two-year MBA. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch a little bit on the people in the cohort. So a lot of our listeners are people who are wanting to take action and wanting to build something for themselves or take the leap. What were the kinds of challenges initially that people had inside the cohorts? I know it'll range depending on what they were actually working and building on, but was there a reoccurring theme of something that you had to help people work through when they were in the cohorts? That's a great question. The thing that comes to mind is that so many um, people who applied for the Alt-MBA and and eventually you know got accepted for the Alt-MBA um, were ready for something new and felt a little bit stuck in their work. Um, but but not stuck because they didn't have options, but almost stuck because they had too many options. Um, and all these were, were talented people, either you know mid to senior level in, in corp- corporations or um, freelancers running their own businesses. So they had a lot of options. And um, the hardest part um, and challenge that kept coming up over and over, um, that was definitely a pattern, were people saying that I don't know what I should be doing. I don't know what I should be doing next. I don't know if this is, I'm working on the right thing right now. I don't know if I should give up, um, you know, whatever it is I'm working on now and, and you know, leap to something else. Um, and so there was this, um, this stress and um, anxiety about, you know, am I working on the thing that I should really be working on and how do I make that decision? Um, and through the course of the month of being in the Alt-MBA, a lot of people came to um, realizations, conclusions, um, decisions that allowed them to figure out what their next step should really be. And you know, I, I credit that to being surrounded by people who challenge you and will provoke you and will tell you hard things that might be might be hard to hear um, so going back to the whole idea of of peer mentors, um, this is absolutely an instance of peer mentorship because you know these are people who um, you know are are dealing with similar challenges, talking it through, and sometimes when you hear someone else talking about a challenge that's similar to yours, you really see yourself reflected back in their story, and that helps you come to a conclusion for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's so many opportunities in the world today, literally any avenue that you can think of because of the expansiveness of online and the ability to connect and and get your ideas out there. There's so much that it feels like it's difficult to go deep at times because there's a little bit of FOMO, right? You have five ideas or five projects that you want to launch. And then there's the dichotomy of, you know, a lot of people say, stick it through. That's where you're going to see the success. But then there's also people who say you need to know when to cut the cord and let the project go. So it's interesting that that you brought up, you know, a lot of the the challenges were focused around what do I do and what do I focus on because I think that's also a product of just how the world is today at large. Absolutely. You're spot on with FOMO. FOMO is a huge problem and um, for many most high-performing smart talented people um, like everyone listening to this, you're probably struggling with figuring out what you should be working on, you know, because you have so many options. And um, and the advice out there doesn't really help because just as you said, Selena, with, you know, conflicting advice of, okay, you know, know when to cut the cord, know when to move on to something else and pivot, but also stick it through. It's like, the, you know, the hard part is really 
knowing which one of those strategies to apply at which time in your project. Um, and those are really big and hard decisions. So, um, you know, I don't think there's a, a shortcut or, or um, you know, an easy answer to those things. But I think the, the answer is finding a process that helps you figure that out. And I think part of that process involves um, testing and iterating and putting putting things out there and seeing what response you get from your audience, from your customers, from your peers, and then just staying very attuned to whether this is still fun for you. Is this still enjoyable? Do you feel like you get to learn what you want to learn? I mean, that's always one of the, the biggest things for me in, in figuring out um, next steps with my career, with, um, you know, with what kind of projects I want to work on is what do I want to learn now? What's exciting for me to learn? And how can I seek out um, projects that allow me to learn those things? Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. So I know that you uh, speak avidly. So I believe you've spoken at Singularity University and a couple of other places. Were you starting to do more of the speaking throughout this period of time? Or were you doing some of that before the you joined for all B MBA? I didn't do any speaking before the Alt MBA. Um, especially doing, especially during the Alt MBA, it was um, it was so all hands on deck, all the time, um, and um, it was it was just a very very heavy uh, workload, and so um, it didn't really have a lot of emotional bandwidth to do um, side projects or speaking, etc. Um, so the speaking has really been a newer thing for me. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken, um, you know, when I was at, at different organizations and, and a little bit during the Alt MBA too. Um, but the majority of it was from after launching my own consulting practice earlier this year. So I guess, uh, 10 months ago now, the time has flown by. As far as starting your own marketing consultancy, when did you know was the right time to make the jump from all MBA and start building something for yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was definitely bittersweet because the Alt MBA was my baby and I'd seen so many different iterations of it over the years. And, you know, especially with an early stage organization, the company changes every three months. So just seeing it evolve and grow and um, and grow its own legs um, was was so special to me. And it was bittersweet because I knew deep down that I was ready for another challenge. Um, and at the same time, there are so many people um, and uh, things that I loved about the Alt-MBA and the community and, and my coworkers and Seth, obviously. Um, so it was, it was hard for me um, but again, in terms of just thinking, okay, you know, what is it that I want to learn next? What do I feel like is really going to challenge me for this next phase in my life? Um, I felt like I was ready to explore um, what it would be like working directly with clients with my own consulting practice, um, which is very different from being at the Alt MBA and, and all the other in-house um, roles before that. Um, and so... Um, so taking the leap, you know, in January of this year, um, was, was a huge transition for me. Um, and, uh, it's been really, really exciting. 
Were there any challenges over that that transition period, or did the excitement kind of outweigh any of the challenges that you might have experienced? Hmm, that's a good question. I think the challenges are all um, all challenges that I expected and and knew were coming, um, and and were excited about was excited about solving. I mean, that's part of it, right? It's I think. The challenges come hand in hand with growth and with learning and with pushing yourself into um, situations where you don't know the right answer and you're not really sure if you can figure it out. Like you think you can figure it out, but it's going to take um, you know all of your brain power um, to do so. And so I think the challenges um, you know that that came with that transition were were all things that I was excited about and um, and wanted to learn more about. And how do you, so now that you're working for yourself, do you have any particular things you do to kind of balance work, growth, and life, or any rituals that you do to quiet your mind either before or after work? What does a typical day or week look like for you? Hmm. Well, I work all the time. So I'm trying to think, hmm, what are self-care things that I do? Um, Well, first, I really love my work. So working a lot is energizing to me. It's fueling for me. So, um, you know, I, I, there's that, there's that quote about how, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I saw this really funny Instagram post the other day that said, um, if you, um, if you do what you love, you're going to, um, work all the time and be obsessed with your work and take everything too seriously. Um, and you know, obviously it's, it's, you know, partially a joke, but, um, but that's, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, and yeah, so, so first I think, you know, I, I, I like working a lot. So, so a lot of my time is spent, um, thinking about work and working on, on my client projects, um, or my blog, um, because, uh, I just find that, that, um, there's such interesting, um, projects and challenges. Um, and that's, I think that's the benefit of, of working for yourself is that you get to design, your um, life and work, hopefully, around the things that you like doing, that you're good at, that add value for your clients. Um, so I've been really cognizant and mindful of of making sure that I'm hitting all three of those um, and, and checking in with myself. Um, if something feels like a slog or it feels, um, you know, not fun, um, I think checking in, checking in with myself um, has been important. Um, and then the other thing in terms of self-care is um, I've really, in recent times, tried to remind myself that things are are not that serious, to not take myself too seriously, to walk through the world with more of a lightness. Um, and as someone who cares a lot about my work and um, and and you know, I always want to over deliver. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, and, and pretty anal retentive about details. Um, I, I think it's easy for me to, to obsess about something and, and it starts to get heavy because you put so much emotional weight and psychological weight on like, oh my God, this thing has to be perfect. It has to be right. Everything is, mm-hmm. is hinging on this. Um, so I've, I've tried to remind myself to um, ease away from that a little bit because it doesn't really help me produce better work at all. Um, it just makes me more anxious. Um, and, and, you know, just remind myself that, that, um, this is fun. This is, this is what I chose to do. And, um, and also, um, you know, 
I think there's always going to be some challenges or problems that you're working on, something that's not perfect or amazing in your life. And I really do believe that that um, the minute a certain problem gets solved, another one fills its place. So I also um, love the quote of um, of um, being thankful for the problems that you do have. You know, I have this little thing on my fridge, um, little postcard that says "All good problems." And I love that because it just reminds me that um, the problems that I have are really pretty good problems in the grander scheme of things. And that in itself just brings me, you know, back to reality um, in a very calming way. A lot of what you had just said resonated with me so hard because I feel like we're similar in the respect of perfectionism and, and just wanting to do the best. So I'm in a client-focused business as well, and I know that you always want to deliver the best work that you can do. And I was having a conversation with somebody, I think maybe two or three days ago, and I was having a tough day. I had a lot to kind of catch up on, and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, and they had essentially said to me in so many words, like, why are you feeling this way? You are in a position that a lot of people would want to be in. You're designing your work and your life and the problems that you have are good problems. So I love that you had touched on that because it's so easy to forget. And sometimes it just takes walking outside and taking a stroll to get out of our heads when we're starting to feel that heaviness. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that. So before we go into the speed round, I do have one last question. So in terms of your new consultancy, is there anything that was a surprising type of growth for you or a surprising new skill that you ended up having to um, acquire to do what you're doing now? Yeah, another great question. Um, most of my career has been more behind the scenes. Um, and now running my own business, I have to be a lot more in front of the scenes, I don't know if that's a phrase, in front of the camera, if you will. Um, and and it's kind of ironic because I, I'm pretty self-conscious still when it comes to self-promotion. Um, so just navigating what does that look like and knowing that, um, you know, if people don't know that you exist, it's really hard for them to find you and to realize if they need your help. Um, so so that journey has been interesting um, and, and just finding finding what my individual voice sounds like if I'm not um, also the voice of a brand and writing on behalf of the brand. Um, I've written thousands of pages of copy um, for you know websites, emails, social, et cetera, et cetera, um, but always as a representative of a brand. And so um, being just West KO and that being the brand has been um, has been, a surprising change. And it's definitely still something that I'm navigating, but really enjoying um, in terms of figuring out, okay, you know, what are the boundaries of, of what I sound like and, and what kind of people do I want to um, continue building relationships with and, and um, have in my audience. And, um, and that has been really fulfilling so far. I feel like it does take a little bit of time to shake the voice of prior companies or projects or brands that you've worked for because a lot of times you it becomes so ingrained with you that you don't realize that you have your own voice that you can shift into. So it's almost like you just have to shake it out of you and eventually it becomes natural to be yourself as weird as that sounds. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think also, you know, another part of that um, that's hard is that especially if you're used to writing in different voices, 
it's like, it's almost easier for you to know, okay, what does this voice sound like? And then I can write in that voice. But to start from scratch without those guardrails yet, um, that's a whole other a whole other beast. So I love what you're saying about kind of shaking off, okay, all the other voices that I wrote in before. Um, let's start with a clean slate and build from there. I'd love to jump into the speed round. So with this, uh, quick question or quick answers to the questions. You don't have to give any context. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So favorite book or podcast? Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Interesting. I haven't heard of that before. As far as music, do you have two songs that get you really pumped up when you need the energy? Yeah, this is a fun question. Um, I think Sierra One Two Step is amazing. Um, and also anything by Missy Elliott. I might be dating myself a little bit here. Interesting. There are some Missy Elliott songs that are pretty, pretty, pretty good. Right? <laughs> yes, totally. Okay, so boldness, adaptability, fearlessness, and confidence. Which of these four words do you feel got you to where you are now? And what is a word that you want to build upon? The one that got me to where I am now is probably boldness in terms of taking leaps before I felt like I was completely prepared or ready. Um, and then convincing myself they weren't a big deal, so I'll do it again. Um, and then the second one with what I want to improve on, probably confidence, um, because you know going back to point number one, um, I think sometimes I do too good of a job of convincing myself that things aren't a big deal. So I tend not to really celebrate a moment or an achievement. I just move on to the next thing. So I think um, the one I want to improve on would be confidence. Do you have somebody that you feel truly lives permissionless? It doesn't have to be anybody you know, or it could be somebody that you know, such as a friend or a peer or a family member. Yes. My friend Amy Jo Martin is an author, businesswoman, um, thought leader. She's an absolute renegade and uh, has one of the coolest career stories. So you should definitely try to interview her next. Awesome. Well, that was going to be my next question is, is there anybody that you want to see interviewed? So I will definitely look her up. I love just because you use the word renegade, I have to see what she is all about. Yes. Well, she actually wrote a book about renegades, so I can happily make an intro. And then as far as one piece of advice, if there's somebody who's looking to take a big leap and do something they want to do, what is one piece of advice that you have for them? My one piece of advice would be that taking a leap doesn't have to be an all or nothing endeavor. Um, you can definitely start small, see where it goes. You don't even have to announce something to the world. You know, I think sometimes big announcements can be dramatic and we want to let the world know what we're working on. But the downside of that is that sometimes you feel locked into needing to finish something that you're just not excited about anymore or, you know, you were only it was only a half-baked idea to begin with. So I'm actually a fan of um, testing and iterating and doing things in small steps with small groups of people. Um, and if you kind of imagine a bullseye um, starting from the center and then expanding outwards there and then getting more and more confident with, with each rung that you're expanding. So that would be my advice. I 100% agree because the public accountability, so I know a lot of people are excited about public accountability because it gives you that push. But personally for me, that gives me a lot of pressure and then I feel like I continue to finish things like you were saying that I'm not necessarily wild about anymore. So the the advice about just taking it step by step, you know, testing it with small groups, I think that's fantastic. Awesome. And lastly, if anybody wants to learn more about your services and your consultancy or you in general, where can they find you online? My website is westko.com and I write a blog about once 
to twice a week about marketing, leadership, management, creating change. Um, so you can find me online there. Perfect. So for anybody that is listening right now, we will have the show notes. So anything that was mentioned as far as books or people or songs that will be at the bottom of the post. Wes, thank you so much for joining me. This was a fantastic conversation, um, not only because it was in the marketing space, but because your, your journey has just been so interesting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Selena. Thank you so much for tuning into the second season of Permissionless. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, share it with somebody that you think would love it. We are a very small team, so any kind of sharing you can do, we 100% appreciate it. In the meantime, check us out on permissionless.com and you can find me on all social networks as Selena Vidya. 